Thanks for tuning in to the Gist of It podcast with your host, Chris Piercy. Hi there, this is Chris Piercy with the Gist of It podcast, joined today by uh, ex-magician, author, speaker, all-round good chap and a uh, person who's able to give a balanced view of both sides of an argument, uh, Mr. Lee Warren. Thank you very much for joining me today. <laughs> Hello, it's a pleasure. So um, I- I'll be honest with our listeners, this is like take two because um, I completely messed up take one. Um, so a bit of the conversation has been said before already, but I don't mind going back over it because it was interesting in the first place. But um, yeah, the one of the best things that came out so far is the this idea of the ability of yours and the kind of lack of ability in a lot of people to see both sides of an argument. Um, so how, how did it come about that you're able to do such a thing? Well, I mentioned it before, it's kind of you to say so. And um, uh, the, the the conversation we had before was particularly in the context of, of sort of pace, Facebook posts and comments on culture and, uh, and politics particularly and, and so on. Um, so the first thing to say is, is anyone who thinks I have a balanced view should should see the stuff I write and don't post. Um, <laughs> so, so 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 one one sort of golden rule is 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 don't press send too early and um, and, <laughs> and, sure. and never post after three gin and tonics either. That's a that's a, that's a major rule. Um, but the I mean the golden one of the earliest sort of golden rules of thumb really of of, of debating or having an opinion or trying to particularly in the world of trying to change. I, I, change people's minds and i suppose this is the, the the foundation is is when i sort of engage publicly in conversation or discourse it, it is always with the intention of trying to change people's minds sure um ra- rather than and in fact i didn't mention this last time and this is quite an important thing i suspect i mean i've got no statistics for it i'm not an academic but i suspect that a lot of people when they post photos images text whatever online it's not really about affecting other people as much as signaling their their inness to a group. All right. So it's so it's look at me, look how virtuous I am or look how interesting I am or, or whatever. Sure. Um, so every every particularly when I write stuff around cultural politics, it's always with the intention of changing people's minds. And one of the first things you have to do, I think, is is you you the oldest rule in debate is you have to be able to um you shouldn't take a position until you can argue your opponent's point of view at least as well as they can. You have to really understand their point of view and, and be able to engage with it. And that gives you several benefits. One is it makes your own arguments stronger. It helps you to spot the weaknesses in your own arguments. But also it helps you to see the areas of, of grey because we're most of the time we're not dealing with facts. We're dealing with opinions. We've all got opinions, but opinions are very rarely 100% correct or incorrect. Um, so it helps you to see those areas of grey and it helps to humanise a, a, a debate, I think. Yeah, I mean, I didn't mention it when we had this, went over this before, but um, have you seen the Disney Pixar film Inside Out? Uh, which one is Inside Out? That's the um, one where there's a teenager and he's going inside of their brain and you've got the five different... Oh, no, I haven't. Yeah. No, no. Okay, so there's a, there's a brilliant moment. So it's all kind of, most of it is happening inside this teenager's head. And there's this thing called the train of thought that they're kind of riding on. And on this, there's a kind of a, um, a section of it that is carrying cargo and it's got boxes. One is labelled opinions and one is labelled facts. And at one, at one moment, they accidentally knock them over and they all fall and land on top of each other. Says, so, oh, no, I've mixed up the opinions and facts. It's like, don't worry, everyone does that anyway. <laughs> and it's, it's just this kind of... Oh, that's cute. Yeah. yeah. Is the train of thought a literal train? It's a literal train. It's, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's honestly, it is what it's... Because it has a, um, and I've mentioned this in previous episodes, it has a really 
I mean, children watching it, it's a fun film. For grown-ups, particularly those who've had mental health or depression or, you know, issues mentally, it's a really quite important film. Um, it's it's it genuinely one, one of my, like, definitely one of my favourite children's film because it's probably got a, a very kind of subtle over the heads of children's view on a message about mental health and, you know, the importance of showing yeah. that you're sad. Um, so yeah anyway the point was the opinions and facts thing so um yeah I mean I I've, I have a, a an episode of the podcast which is all about the pointlessness of um virtue signaling or self-development virtue signaling where people like you say they want to appear as if they are doing something or they are something or rather than you know rather than do the Facebook post saying that you are whatever you are just do the thing <laughs> and it's, it's, it's kind of I guess it's the modern world but it's kind of sad that people feel the need to get that validation about whatever it is that they're doing rather than just going yeah I'm just going to start living my life in this way rather than saying hey everyone I'm going to live my life in this way because it kind of it, it depends where it's, whether it's for accountability or not I suppose but it's yeah it'd be nice if people just did the thing <laughs> Yeah, part, partly. I mean, by its nature, social media is 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 demonstrative, right? I mean, so so you you can't just exist and be on social media. Those those two things are in conflict. You ev sure. everything you do is on social media is performative. Posting a photograph, um, uh, uh, um, uh, writing something, liking someone's post. Everything is sending a message about who you are, and the the constant temptation is to curate that version of who you are. To be the very best. So in some ways, it's only the digital equivalent of shining your shoes and putting on a nice item of clothing to go out and walk for a street. And mm. on that level, it's probably harmless. Um, but on a deeper level, the I, I think the emotional pull of feeling part of a group is very strong in us as humans. And it's probably millions of years old. It's, it's, it's that thing all mammals do of, of finding safety in a group. Mm. The, the danger, I think, with social media, and, and it's one that you know I definitely wouldn't have predicted 15 years ago is that what happens is we we've ended up a, a bit i think in a sort of centrifuge where where uh, um, people of differing opinions are they're, they're cycling around each other and both those extremes are getting thrown more and more out to the extreme so 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 one day someone virtue signals something and then they get a, a an aggressive pushback so the following day they they signal it even more to a, to an ever decreasing number of people who hold views even more outre than theirs are so i'm interesting that you should kind of bring that up and it kind of ties in what you said about essentially when you're posting stuff of that nature you're trying to change people's minds so kind of a two-part question do you think that you have altered people's opinions on things and does it matter to you whether you have or not or are you just happy that you've kind of put your flag in the ground and said this um, so the answer to both those questions is yes. And in one topic in particular, I have I have an actual statistic for it. Um, oh, lovely. The statistic itself is is funny. <laughs> um, so so I'm I'm um, anybody connected to me online. When, you know, I, I was a, a firm remainer in the in the, in the Brexit wars of 2016. <laughs> um, and it became very, very clear to me that most of the discussions that were happening were, were not done with the intention of changing, changing everybody's minds, changing anyone's minds. 
So one of the things I, I did was to um, try and write, rather than criticisms or terror stories of what would happen because of Brexit, even though I think those things were were to some extent likely to be true, and some of them and, have come uh, true. <laughs> <laughs> I decided to write um, a series of positive posts about what membership of the European Union and I use that phrase advisedly, rather than the European Union as a thing in itself, the, the activity of being a member of that union. I tried to write positive posts about what that had done for the United Kingdom. Um, and that created some some uh, uh, um, great uh, uh, feedback, some great commentary. And the other thing I tried to do was write things that were humorous, that would make people smile and, and, and think rather than just angry and, and ranty. Um, and I collected the responses and I had, and this is what made me laugh in, in, in consequence, uh, 52 messages from people <laughs> who said either, either I was going to vote for Brexit and you've changed my mind. I, I And so they were either going to vote remain or they were going to abstain, mm. which was quite interesting. Um, or people who said I was going to abstain. I just what I wasn't bothered, but actually you've convinced me to to to, to vote remain. Um, so it was fifty two. I collected the the the, the, um, the private messages that I had. So fifty two people, um, their minds were changed. Now that's a tiny tiny thing, right? Sure. Uh, fifty two people, but the figure made me laugh. But the the point is, um, I, I I suspect if if millions of the people who felt strongly about it had adopted a more human humorous positive form of discussion mm. that might have been enough to tip the vote the the the, the other way yeah because um yeah i mean if only right that's uh here, here we are now and uh not that anything's gone completely to shit at all but <laughs> yes it's a, it's a shame that more people didn't uh didn't adopt that more human attitude um i mean i was, I was on your website last night just looking through about and um, a lot of the reviews you've got from the kind of the blue chip clients that you've worked for um, speak very highly of you, of course, but um, they all seem to mention how humorously you deliver uh, the, the talks that you do. Um, how important do you think um, humor is when it comes to communicating well with people? Oh, it's 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 essential. Um, there's a great song uh, from uh, oh, what's the name? I can't remember. There's there's a song in a uh, a 1950s musical um, called "Make Them Laugh," which is the same melody as Cole Porter's "Be a Clown." Uh, sorry, the other way around, mm. whichever way around it is. Sure. Um, and there's a wonderful lyric in it, and and the lyric is, um, "You can study Shakespeare and be quite elite, and you can charm the critics and have nothing to eat." But slip on a banana skin, the world's at your feet. Make them laugh, make them laugh, make them laugh. And and um, I mean, hu humor enables you to. And the only reason I mentioned Brexit, by the way, in the previous thing, was just because I had a statistic around that. It's not because I I I, I think it's a cut, totally cut and dried issue. But on anything where, particularly where you're trying to engage people, change their minds, get people to to either you know be on your side or at least listen to your case, humor is incredibly disarming. I mean, and if you think of someone, for example, right at the opposite end of the political spectrum to, to me, I, I would say someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg. Mm. Rees-Mogg, someone I, I find uh, politically um, uh, profoundly different to me. I, I, I disagree with almost everything he says, but he has an astonishing communicating gift, which is as soon as he starts speaking, you, you can't help yourself smiling. You just smile. Um, he's, whatever that gift is, he's he's got it. And, and it really is astonishingly disarming and 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 can win over many people so i 
I think anybody who wanted to be a better communicator in any way, humour is one of the best weapons you can have to do that. So would you say there's any situations where humour is completely inappropriate or is there always a slot for a modicum of humour if nothing else? It's a great question, actually. Um, I mean, that's the answer to that is always going to depend a bit on context, isn't it? So, uh, I mean, I'm thinking... I mean, I've had a, a couple of friends with very serious illnesses in the last few years, as, as many of us have. Um, one of them dealt with it with humour. I mean, humour, constant humour. That was his way of dealing with it. I mean, a terminal illness. Um, other people would find that very inappropriate. So I, I, I don't think there's a an absolute answer to that. One, one thing I would say, though, is there's a difference between humour and jokes. Um, <clears throat> and in fact, in my in my book, I, I, the section I've written a section on humour um and and largely ask people to avoid telling jokes jokes are not always humorous um jokes are different even professional comedians can get a joke wrong sometimes they're they're tough to deliver um so humor can often be self-deprecating it can be gentle subtle um and humor tends to be inclusive in the real sense of the word inclusive humor rarely leaves anyone out it's it's often a a group thing humor yeah and um you know I remember going back to when I was at school, there was a song about smiling and the, the idea of just if you smile, I mean, humor and smiling, you know, not the same, but you know, strong, strong Venn diagram. But if you smile at someone, there is a very high chance that they will smile back at you. And it kind of just, you know, it, it kind of just spreads. So, you know, it's um, humor is something that's very, very important to me as a, you know, when I've been performing and I, I use humor in the therapy room as well. I mean, I think that it's kind of quite nice to get people to laugh at themselves at times, you know, particularly when I have clients with anxiety who are catastrophizing and go, you know, when people are saying, Oh, I, I worry about, you know, this happening, this thing, okay, okay, what's the worst case scenario? And they will say something which isn't too bad. Uh, then I will layer on top just how much worse it could get with humor. And before they know what they are, they notice how silly even the first thing they said was before I even piled on the, you know, all of the ridiculous stuff on top of that. Um, so it's it's yeah. quite nice yeah. to be able to get them to kind of take a step back and actually laugh at themselves. Because I think the ability to laugh at oneself is, um, you know, incredibly important. But you, know, you mentioned about self-deprecation. Do you ever think that that can go too far to the point where it's actually jam- damaging to yourself? Again, that's that's very context dependent, and particularly culturally uh, context dependent. So, in in the United Kingdom and and quite a few European countries, self deprecating humour works really well. Generally, people tend to like it. It, it uh, um, and to, partly because to some extent you need a certain amount of personal confidence to be able to be self deprecating, particularly in public. If you're a speaker or a performer on stage, mm. you need a bit of confidence to be able to do that. But in other contexts, so for example, in the United States. Self-deprecating humor is much dodgier. You're on much shakier foundations, um, uh, particularly if you're not on either of the uh, either of the coasts. Mm. Um, and I've I found that to my cost as a, as, a, as a speaker, definitely. And there are other cultures I probably don't know very well where um, it will work to greater or lesser extents. Talking about humor and, and catastrophizing, you just reminded me. I um, I occasionally do a Voice of God gigs, and Voice of God is the disembodied voice you hear at award ceremonies and things, telling you to take your seats and announcing mm. the shortlist and stuff like that. So sometimes, about four or five times a year, uh, clients will ask me if I'll do that at 
the end of a day or something. I'm very happy to to do it. It's a very easy gig to do, actually, um, if you've got a microphone voice. And um, and one time I was doing uh, a, a new award ceremony. So it was a publisher who'd never done an award ceremony before. And the guy running it, the, the big guy, was absolutely terrified. He was in a real state. And I sat down with him and the script and I went through and I said, can I just check some pronunciations with you for, for this evening? And he was really worried. He was sweating. He was nervous. He was he was terrified that I was going to make a mistake mispronouncing one of his sponsors or something like that. And as we were talking, the the event producer came along. So the guy who was who'd organized the set, the lights, the sound, all of that sort of stuff. And um, so actually so actually he was my client, not not this this person I was speaking to. And as he walked past, um, I said to him, oh, by the way, the, the the end client, he's looking really, you know, he's 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 nervous. He's worried about tonight. And the event producer looked at the end client and he said to him, oh, you've got nothing to worry about. I've ruined far bigger events than this. <laughs> <laughs> and then then strode off down a corridor. And actually, it was exactly the right thing to say. This 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 publisher laughed. He laughed his head off and he sort of visibly relaxed in front of me. So it was, an, it was a nice use of humor. Yeah, it's. um. The right line delivered at the right time can diffuse a lot of situations. Um, I'm interested to know how, as, as far as I'm aware, you were magician first, and then that was the, you did more corporate stuff, and then corporate stuff led to talking more, and then you kind of made the full leap. Is that about accurate from a, what what I gather? It's yeah it's 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 very accurate i mean talking i got i got uh, told off for it at school and now people pay me for it so it's quite a nice journey to go <laughs> through in life um yeah I've, I've been a magician for money since i was 12 years old i'm 51 now um and uh so for well over 20 years i i earned a living from from performing magic about 70 percent what's called close-up magic um uh, you know walking up to strangers at events and, and doing magic in their hands and then about 30 percent was cabaret style on a stage magic um and in the late uh noughties sort of 2007 onwards ish roughly um I, I used to i was quite good at understanding businesses and, and integrating their messages into my magic. And so I would do a lot of things like exhibitions and product launches, stuff where the, it had to be more than just magic tricks. It had to have a bit of a message behind it. So I was quite good at doing that. And um, slowly over time, clients would say things like, oh, you know, you're you're, you're good at getting on with people and, and good at engaging people. Can you teach us how to do that? And so I gave that a go. And um, gradually that morphed into just speaking about the, the stuff that I do. So it's quite organic, really. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's nice when you kind of flow naturally into something because presumably when you picked up a pack of cards at 12 years old, you didn't think, I'm going to be a public speaker one day. Because um, I think that's <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny being at school, you say, what are you going to be when you're older? And I mean, the amount that people know about the world when they're at school is, you know, about as close to zero as you can get, more or less. <laughs> so to just, you know, organically flow, I mean, I, I never plan to be a therapist well, I mean my when I left school I went to university to do um um automotive engineering um didn't didn't work out for me right. and uh, here 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 I am as a kind of magician and a hypnotherapist life coach so it's uh, it's funny the direction that life uh, yeah. takes us in but do you feel like the the skill set that you have in terms of being able to teach communication and the the things that you teach within your public speaking is that just presumably that's not come from training that's just come from um school of life for want of better 
school of hard knocks or whatever you um, want to call it. It's it's mainly bluff and unwarranted self confidence, really. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's there's a mixture of all sorts of things. Um, uh, I mean, like I said earlier, you know, I'm not I'm not I'm not an academic. I don't have the patience to be someone who properly researches and yeah, um, you, you know, goes very deep into a very narrow area. Um, he, he says with two hundred plus books on a bookshelf behind him, but yes. <laughs> I've got, uh, well, that's a tiny section. And in fact, from the camera, you can see that the perspective is a bit weird. They, It looks, I'll, I'll show you, hang on, I'll just walk. You might lose my sound for a second. If I walk to the bookcase, you can see it's much bigger than... Um, oh, yes, it is. Yeah, it's, it's much bigger than it might appear. I've got about four and a half thousand books. Um, wow. And, and <laughs> But he hasn't best. got the patience, um, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, I love read, reading. Greatest. Um, uh, if, if somebody were to give me my dream job, it would be sitting in an armchair just reading. Uh, and and, and um, that, that's it. Um, one, one thing I wanted to say just before that, I actually is talking about, you know, when you know nothing at school and people say, what do you want to do? I, I would I don't always like giving people advice. But one thing I think is I'm so glad I've done throughout my life, really glad is, is always follow my instincts always. Um, and every time I haven't followed my instinct something's gone wrong mm. and every time i have followed my instinct the result somehow has always been great and magical um and when i knew when i was a teenager at school i wanted to be a magician and um and i met the careers advice person and she basically we had a 20 minutes together and she basically laughed in my face you know i was 50 14 15 and she said well, yeah but seriously and i said yes seriously i'm going to be a magician that's what i do i'm earning money now doing it. that's what i want to do and um, with some derision, she basically wrote down English teacher on my recommended career path and gave it to me. <laughs> anyway, years, years later, um, I did um, the Princess Diana Memorial concert at Wembley and, and Prince William and Harry were there as the main guests. And I did magic for both of them. And I got a very lovely letter afterwards uh, from, I mean, one of his flunkies, obviously, but signed by Prince William, you know, mm. um, you're, you're amazing, great magic. And, uh, and I sent a photocopy of that back to my old school. And um, said, if you can find the careers teacher who was around in 1985, 1986, would you give her this letter? Because this is the career she told me w w I, sh I couldn't possibly ever do. Incredible. Um, Love it. And stop by giving advice. Um, anyway, in terms of the, the thing you mentioned about teaching um, communication, what... Um, I mean, the briefest thing to say really is is what public speakers do, what, what, what keynote speakers like me do is, is two things at the same time. And one is give people information and the other is make that interesting and entertaining and memorable. So what a public speaker does, a keynote speaker is very different to a training course or even a workshop. It's it's really about giving. So it's I, I often call it corporate cabaret or business cabaret. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's about giving people an experience as much as giving people information. And that's quite an important distinction to, 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 to make. So. The journey of me as a speaker has been to take, if you like, just to sum it up quickly, the three or four most important things people need to take away and use in the real world and then spend 45, 60 minutes making those three or four simple things memorable and engaging and interesting so that people leave a room with a real desire to do that. Whereas the dynamic of something like training or workshops is quite the opposite. It's to try and get through lots and lots and lots of stuff Mm. um and 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 give people that information and it can be interesting and entertaining but it doesn't have to be that isn't a foundational requirement of it yeah so it's a kind of 80 20 split in opposite directions almost um depending on whether it's public speaking or training course 
that fair to say? Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. And it will depend also as as a speaker, it will depend partly on the content um, and partly on the booker's need. So someone like me gets booked and speakers similar to me, you know, we get booked at least as much for our personality and our entertainment value as we do for the content. So a booking for me will very typically be one of three times in a day. It will either be to kick off the day um, or it will be the after lunch slot or it will be the end of the day. And nearly always there'll be some comment like um, what we need is, you know, everyone comes back from lunch and they're all a bit sleepy and we need someone to wake the afternoon up. Yeah. Um, And we also need the sales team to be good at these things. Um, So you, you provide the energy. Yeah. Energy and and entertainment and interest. So if you had to, I mean, you mentioned three or four as a a number perhaps plucked out of the air, but what would you say are the three or four most important um, things when it comes to communication? Bearing in mind, I'm not going to limit you to three or four, but I mean, I I would say that in everyday life, um, um, who wrote... uh, don't split the difference. The negotiation book, Chris. Oh, Chris, Chris Voss, I think that is. Yeah, yeah. So he said his thing is that he says that everything in life is a negotiation, right? Um, you know, whether it's kind of you're getting your kids, you know, school shoes on, or where where are you and your partner deciding to go on holiday? So bearing in mind that basically everything is a negotiation or a discussion, what would you say are the most important things to kind of empower people who are listening right now to communicate better? get people to kind of agree with them more perhaps or just you know some people are really bad at what they will call conflict whereas some people would categorize it as conversation but as soon as there's any percent of disagreement all of a sudden in the head it's a conflict so what would you say are the things that are important to bring to the table when having these kind of conversations the single most important thing is to understand quite how Im- how it- uh, emotion underpins so much of our engagements with other humans and and how easy it is to miss that, how easy it is to get that wrong um, and how how it, it's very easy for ourselves to tell ourselves a story in our head that, that uh, our view of the world is pretty much the right one and the way I, I see the world and the way I talk about the world is the right way to talk about the world and then just set out my own case using the words that make sense to me and just assume if I've done that in, in an interesting and eloquent way, other people will agree with it or at least take it seriously. Um, and that's what bad communicators do is, is just think if I use certain facts or certain words in a certain order, I'll get the result that I want. Um, all great communication really lies on an understanding of how important emotion is. If you look at any great speech, I mean, great good, good speeches, historical speeches are a great way to learn better communication. They'll nearly always do a few things. One of those is the introduction to those speeches will nearly always be about getting the audience on side before even the main idea is expressed. Um, uh, I mean, what's a famous opening to a speech? Four, four score years and te- three score years and ten. Four score years and ten. Three score years and ten, wasn't it? Seventy. Three. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, Abraham Lincoln's great great mm. speech. Three score years and ten. Um, even those opening words, you know, they set a sort of biblical tone. He's he's clearly emotionally saying this is this is a great sentiment. You know, we need to come up to the level of this 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 speech. Um, uh, uh, well, well, Martin Luther King must be the most famous, mustn't he? You know, I have a dream. Mm. Um, what a great! He, he's not even telling you what the dream is yet, but he but he but he's saying this is big. This matters. 
So great communicators will always understand the importance of emotion. And even on a day-to-day, really simple level, um, you, you know, if we think about arguments we have with our partners or kids or, or, or whatever, and if you listen carefully to the language people use, they're always saying things like, you know, you're you're not listening to me, or what? Well, you always do that. Um, <laughs> yeah. And we and we tend to think when when we ourselves do something that's a mistake or wrong, we tend to think that's a temporary defect or a temporary error. But when other people do those things, we tend to think that's a permanent personality fault. Yeah. Um, and again, that, it's just emotional. We're just we're just justi- justifying our own our own behaviour to ourselves. It's that, that that's the single most important thing. It's that black and white thinking of uh, things that always it's always or it's never. There's never. <laughs> it's not in the that kind of very large section in the middle. It's yeah. When, when it comes to arguments with partners or whatever or children, so it's um yeah the uh, the grey area just disappears entirely. It seems. But yeah, that 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 idea of removing emotion entirely i mean i've I've had situations before where i've I've been sending an email and typically i'll send it to my sisters first and say can you check this email before i send it off and they'll read for it and go yeah everything you've written there has come from the the heart and not from the head and you go right okay that's the first draft (laughs) Um, <laughs> yeah. going back and going right okay if I remove all of the emotion from what from this what am I actually trying to say what's my actual message and like you said earlier these you know the the head deals in facts the heart um, deals in opinions you know mostly you know so a, a broad statement but largely factual probably but it's if um, I think it's in the written word it's a lot easier to kind of do those kind of drafts in the moment, it can be a lot harder if you're having that discussion to go, right, how do I not chuck how this makes me feel out there? How can I just say, this is the truth? So it's that kind of idea of going, splitting the two things up, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, I wouldn't advocate for removing emotion. I'm, I'm not sure it is possible to remove emotion um, from from our dealings with other humans, but certainly acknowledging that it's there, acknowledging how much it might be blinding you to what's really happening. I think that's what I was trying to say. It, yeah, yeah, yeah the, and the... also acknowledging how much it's driving the, the the other person. I mean, there are depending on how how much you like reading or your listeners like reading. I mean, anything by Antonio Damasio is really worth. Uh, um, reading and Damasio wrote a wonderful book called Descartes' Error and and the, the the foundational idea is that Descartes' Error was to assume humans can act without or can think without emotion um, and also Ian McGilchrist who wrote a phenomenal book called The Master and His Emissary um, which is again about the division of the human mind into what what really drives us is it emotions is it is it, is, is it um, facts which bits of the brain are moving us um, can uh be really useful and actually on that note coming back to the um thing you mentioned earlier about sort of being balanced and having opinions um the the righteous mind which is by uh the american psychologist jonathan Haidt, is a really terrific book i mean one of the very few books um where i, I often finish books and think i've learned something i'm you know I'm, I'm better educated i very rarely finish a book and think i'm a genuinely wiser human being now wow um and and that's one of the one of the very few. And again, the foundation of the book is exactly the same. We're driven by emotions as much as by rationality or probably more. But he sets out his case in such beautiful, clear prose and with such great 
um, analogies and metaphors and comparisons that it's a um, a great book to you'd be a better communicator if you read that book. And do you, do you think that can help people across the board in life? I well, I do, but that's partly because I like reading and I remember things I've read. So if you're someone who doesn't like reading and doesn't remember what you've read, then it probably wouldn't. <laughs> but the basic, but the basic ideas would. So you know whether that means getting an audiobook version or whether that means getting someone to sit down and explain some of the ideas to you. Um, but I think the basic point is very simple. It's just um, we, we get, you know, these emotional impulses. We, I mean, there are, there's old phrases like, you know, we cut our nose off despite our face. Mm. I mean, that's that's an admission of how how destructive emotion can be if we don't really see it for for what it is. I do um, in one of my talks, I do a very simple, a very, very simple negotiation with the audience. And it's it's a bit hard to paraphrase how fun and profound it can be for the audience in real time but the, the but the basic negotiation is very simple it's just asking the audience to get into pairs and um i hypothetically offer them a thousand pounds and say you can have the thousand pounds if you can agree on how you're going to divide it and if you're both happy you can have the thousand pounds and of course each pair i give them 10 seconds and each pair says well let's split it 50 50 and they both say yes and okay they can have the thousand pounds and then in a second negotiation, I say, OK, the rules are the same, but this time I want one of you to try and get £995 just for yourself. <laughs> and so this second negotiation, it all, of course, goes horribly wrong. And there's there's um, some some robust arguing in the room. And the point of that negotiation is that actually in the second one, one of those two should immediately say, OK, I'll take five. That's it. Great. Uh, I'll be happy um, because they'd have five pounds that they didn't have previously. Right, so they'd object objectively be better off saying yes to that that negotiation. They, 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 it's it's identical to me saying, "Would you like five pounds?" Just for saying the word yes. Um, but because it doesn't feel fair, because it doesn't feel right, because it doesn't feel balanced, it's incredibly hard to say yes to that deal because the other person is going to get nine hundred ninety-five pounds. It just doesn't feel fair, and actually, it shouldn't matter because if you say yes to five pounds, you're going to be better off than five pounds you didn't have. Um, and and I do that just because it's such a powerful demonstration of quite how much emotion can can unhinge our thinking and make us stop thinking clearly. Yeah. So the old adage of um, what's a hundred percent of nothing. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean that, that must be a, an interesting thing to witness from the kind of up on stage, seeing the people down there and seeing them. Oh, we're going to get five hundred pounds each, and all of a sudden, but. I'm going to kind of play devil's advocate. Having previously told them that it's 500, 500, does it not, because that's how it's been set up, does it not then feel like a £495 loss to them then? It absolutely does. Um, (laughs) And that's sort of part, part, that's part of the point. Um, Regardless, uh, they're still £5 better off. Yeah, it it, 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 yeah. it feels like all sorts of things to different people. And the point is the feeling is stronger than the ability to think clearly. That that that's the point of the exercise. Um and and I, in, interestingly, I mean I've tried that exercise in lots of different ways, and it had to be at least that amount of money to make it work in a room. Mm. Um so you you can't do it with 20 pounds and one getting 15 and the other one only getting five. People yeah, find that's... that quite easy to say yes to because it doesn't feel so unfair doesn't feel so unbalanced the principle is identical yeah it doesn't feel unfair well not 995 pounds is a lot of takeaways you know that's how people tend to (laughs) or a lot of nights out or a lot of nice bottles of wine um i want to oh you haven't had a night out with me have you it's not that many nights out (laughs) (laughs) so um, i'm interested to 
Um, presumably you're uh, familiar with Gary V. Gary Gary Vaynerchuk, yes. Yeah, yeah. So okay. um, he, because we, we were speaking about, um, oh, when you're at school, you don't know anything about the world and thing. One of his big things is that you said you were 51. Is that correct? 51, I am, yeah. Yeah. So here's one of his things is like, if you're 51, then you've still got another 40 years. So you could start doing whatever you wanted to do in your life right now. How much would you say that's actually true? Is it because in some, because I'm a little bit on the fences. On one hand, I think, yes, absolutely, you can do that because there's lots of opportunities in the world and you still have got lots of years. You do have the time. Because he, he always talks about how much fucking time everyone's got, you know, um, that's using his words. Um, but on the other hand, it, once you've reached a certain age, you have certain responsibilities, you have certain, you know, financial commitments and things which you can't just particularly bail on. So what's your what's your opinion on like if you let's say a, a new dream of yours came up now? abandon everything and start something completely fresh do you think it's possible being 51 being 60 being in your 40s what, what's your view on it well it, it's it's clearly possible because some people do it and it's clearly difficult because most people don't <laughs> um, <laughs> um uh, I, I remember uh, the, the playwright joe orton um wrote uh one time something like the, the weird thing about life is as as people get older they should become less risk averse and absolutely the opposite happens i mean i i think physiologically definitely you get a bit more risk averse as you, as you as you get older you get sort of more um worried about things and partly that's just life experience partly because when you're 20 you you haven't done anything yet right so so everything looks interesting and exciting and when you're 51 you've done quite a few things and you realize so for me this happened with performing by the way you know by the mm. time i got to 40 i i'd done magic in in almost all the permutations I could do it to almost every kind of audience I was ever going to meet. And and I still love doing it, but I knew if I carried on doing it for five years, I wouldn't love it in five years' time. Um, and uh, so so that's part of getting older. You sort of do things and you think, I don't want to do that again. I don't want to do that again. Um, partly physically, <laughs> you just have a bit less energy. I mean, um, <laughs> this weird thing happens to you when you get old you just wake up early in the morning whether you like it or not and i'm not a morning person but i, yeah. I, I do wake up now early I, and i don't want to but i do um but equally yeah i think that i mean life's really short isn't it? it's really short um i mean i mean if you don't realize that by the time you're 50 you're, you're a bit of an idiot probably um <laughs> i mean it's it, so and uh th th there's yeah I, I can see the problem with balancing it with responsibilities but but by and large, you're 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 you're, you're going to regret not doing things more than doing things. I'm I'm sure. I'm absolutely sure. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, oddly enough, I mean, you said about the lack of time is one of the things I was thinking. I was drop my daughters back to back to their mums, but as I was driving back, is this the idea of um, you know I'm I follow the Stoics quite um, that kind of philosophy quite closely not exactly because they're a little a little bit too death obsessed but you know fairly closely um and one of the things is how short life is and how little time you had so like i was thinking to myself if i had a terminal diagnosis now what would be the thing i would be regretting the most um 
and kind of thinking, well, that's what kind of information I like to pass on to people. So, you know, if you're listening to this right now, if you were to all of a sudden get a terminal diagnosis, what would you regret the most? That's the thing you should be doing. That's the thing you should be mm. focusing upon. Mm. Um, because mm. we don't know how much time we've got, but it's a lot less than we th- th- than we think. Do not do not ask for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. That, that <laughs> terrifying, um, terrifying old phrase. There, there's a lovely um, in um, Andrew Marvell, the the um, uh, the great poet, in his poem um, to his coy mistress. There's a wonderful line. It says, um, "And at my back, I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near." Ooh. And there's this great sense that you know time it's 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 coming. It's coming. Um, and I think I'm reminded of, uh, I think it was David Allen in his book, Getting Things Done. I think it's David Allen. Um, if not, it's a writer like him. Anyway, the, basically posits this idea of if you've got a, you know, if you've got a terminal diagnosis and you were told you had three months left to live, um, you'd probably do things differently over the next three months. You probably, there'd probably be a lot of priorities that would change and there'd probably a lot of ways of behaving that would change. And then if you got told, Three at the end of three months. Oh, sorry, we made a mistake. We 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 got the wrong file. You're absolutely fine. Um, what what would happen to you? Would you just go back to the way life was before, or would you be able to carry on that life that you'd had in those three months? And it's a really I don't think there's an answer to it. But I think it's a really interesting question to it certainly to ask. is. In other words, what's stopping you living at that level of these are my real priorities and this is what I should really be doing right now? What's what's preventing you doing that? And I think some of those things are reasonable things to have as preventions but it's an interesting question to ask all the time anyway yeah i see i feel it's the the slight difference between the you only live once attitude where you go out and do everything you've ever wanted to do um compared to the kind of the more stoic idea of you know um remember you're going to die memento mori or mori i always forget the pronunciation which is not quite you only live once it's look you could die at any given moment you should be living your life so that you know, with your moral compass, with your ethics, with your core values all pointing in the correct direction, not, you know, hookers and fast cars or whatever, but, uh, you know, just going, right, this is the sort of person I am. This is the sort of person I'd like to be remembered as. So this is how I live my life, because tomorrow it could be time up. Um, so it's, yeah, yeah that, that that question kind of strikes an interesting balance between those those two things, because... Yeah, it's it's a very very good question. I have to say, one one I'm going to ponder over. To be perfectly honest, yeah, it's quite it's quite provocative, isn't it? Um, and and again, it will change. You know, we all have to be human to each other. It will change depending on people's responsibilities. I mean, you know, I make many life choices I, because I'm not a parent. Right? Mm. I have no one with um, uh, uh, no dependents, no no one to, to to plan for their future. That that will affect many of the choices I make in my life, which I couldn't do if I had three kids. I'd be, I'd be very different choices I'd be able to make. Sure, yeah, because your your husband is um is Spanish, right? Uh, legally Spanish, but actually Venezuelan. Uh, legally, <laughs> legally Spanish. That's uh not yeah. not two words I've heard next to each other before. Um, so yeah. is there a is there a difference in kind of attitude towards this thing between between Span or Venezuelan uh, cultures and Kind of British cultures, do you think? I mean, what's what's the um, what's the when you say uh, this thing? Do do you mean the whole mortality? Yeah, I mean the the, the mortality because I I spent I spent three months around South America. I didn't get to Venezuela, um, and each country lives life in a little little bit of a different way. 
They speak Spanish in very different ways. You know, I mean, Brazil speak it particularly in a Portuguese way, to be perfectly frank. <laughs> um, but yeah, but do you, is, what's the attitude to life like from a Venezuelan point of view? Uh, well, Venezuela is particularly tough because it's in political turmoil, of course, and 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 is not really a functioning um, society in in many ways. Um, historically, uh, I mean, I mean, yeah. Well, his, historically, Venezuela is slightly unusual because it, it had a, a benign dictatorship. It had a military dictatorship, um, and one of the saddest things about Venezuela is, until very recently, nobody knew anything about it at all. It was it was almost an invisible country for for, for most people. Um, but the I mean, I wouldn't want to generalize too much, but there's clearly something in South America that's informed by a Latin culture and the Catholic Church. There's a particular view of um, and there's certainly there's a and I suspect and I'm not in any way an expert in this space and political scientists will probably find my ideas very crude and blunt. But there's a real manana Mm. Um, you know everything's going to happen tomorrow <laughs> yeah. um, oh, i'll tell you a story in a moment <laughs> <laughs> there's definitely a savior complex there um, oh, and I, I suspect that's partly a religious thing and partly uh simon bolivar the, the great liberator of south america they, they, he's sort of their king arthur for, for many countries mm. so he was there he did it and he's going to come back one day or someone like him is going to come back so that that affects the culture a bit um but my my sense and i know the continent reasonably well but i've only ever been a tourist mm. um is in terms of day-to-day living there's 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 quite a it's, it's certainly not as stressed commercially as 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 many of us are in in western europe yeah yeah you just from the manana thing reminded me of i was in uh, potosi which is the highest city in the world a uh, little fact for you there which is in bolivia and um me and a couple of um, people i'd met went to the shop and then the, the shop had like a barred front and it, it, it was like oh gosh where there's a desk at the front and all the stuff's at the back and you go can i have and you kind of just point at the things that you want and they bring them to the front to you and there was a crate of beer there at the front and the woman was sat at the back and kind of just asked nicely for the, the beer and she looked at it and it was a good two and a half meters away it was three o'clock in the afternoon. She's like, uh, manana, manana. <laughs> just, like, <laughs> just couldn't be bothered to get up and uh, make the sale. So, oh. <laughs> which is, yeah, just one of those things that's just stuck in my head. But yeah, my, my time in South America, um, yeah, it was very much the two, the two figures that I saw most in the countries are, and you, you either see uh, Che Guevara or you see Christ. You know, the, <laughs> the, the two. The, the the two big guns of uh, South American culture, from my experience, um, and it's it's oh, definitely yeah, it's um, and it's I remember being taken in um uh outside Rio to see the famous Christ the Redeemer by yep. my friends in Rio. On, lots on of the monkeys mountain. there. Did you see lots oh, of monkeys? monkeys every oh, my, lots everywhere. of monkeys. Bloody, yeah, you have to really guard your food. Um, <laughs> anyway, they took me up to see Christ the Redeemer, and and um. Uh, it's not it's not actually that impressive when you're close it's quite a boring sculpture but um around the the figure of christ there are there are um, railings a whole thing of railings to presumably to stop people jumping off the mountain and uh, my friend from um uh, leblon in ipanema said to me you see lee in rio even jesus is behind bars oh <laughs> like it yeah yeah in my experience of it was that uh, yeah the view from the top was actually a lot uh, the the view of a uh... 
Christ, the Redeemer, is much more impressive from far away. And the best thing about Definitely. being up there is the view back down, <laughs> which is... um Yeah. Th- there's a metaphor in that somewhere for, for, for certain. Um, <laughs> now, I'm, I'm aware that you're kind of slightly uh, pressed for time. So what I like to do when I, I have guests on is to ask them, and this is going to be difficult to ask a very well-read man like yourself, but... If you had to kind of nail down and take your time on this one particular quote or one particular um, moment, even that's been a real light bulb moment for you, that's kind of flicked a switch in your head and changed things for you, what would that be? And take your time because um, it's, I mean, for me, it was a quote by Epicurus about gratitude that my kind of my, my hypnotherapy tutor kind of laid on me and it hit me like a gut punch which was uh, do not spoil what you have by desiring what you have not what you have now was once among that which you desired um which was just like wow okay that's how I'm living my life from this moment um now that's filled in enough time for you to have a think so <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, it's very hard to narrow it down to one. Um, you can have I've already several. mentioned the Andrew Marvell Times Winged Chariot, which definitely was um, one. There's a similar from a similar age from Shakespeare's Richard II. I remember at a very young age being very affected by the line in Richard II, which is, um, uh, "I have wasted time; now doth time waste me." Um, as he's as he's sat in his cell, which is which I found sort of both terrifying and motivating. Um, one of my very favourite. Uh, phrases and I'm really sorry I can't attribute it to anyone because I don't know who it was but um, again I heard it years ago and it's always stayed with me and it is um, you can make new friends but you can't make old friends and I think that's such a beautiful phrase because I've always treasured my friendships and I work quite hard at keep keeping my, my, my friends and then I remember um, I was about 17 18 and I read um, Herman Hesse's novel Siddhartha which is the, the story of um, the the uh, it's not it's a, it's a sort of buddhist inflected novel mm. um there are several phrases in there which which really affected me and that led me to reading charlotte joko beck's book everyday zen and there's a phrase in everyday zen where charlotte joko beck writes about fighting essentially creating problems for ourselves in life i mean often we live lives as if we're escapologists you know we create <laughs> our own problems that we're trying to solve and no one else cares really um and in everyday zen she right there's a moment where she says the sun's the sun's going to rise whether you like it or not your washing machine is going to break whether you like it or not um your only route through life is to is to learn to accept these things and it's that's not word for word but it's something like that and i, I found that See, very beautiful the sun's going to rise whether you like it or not yeah i mean one of the foundations of when i work with people uh, on a therapy basis is this idea of acceptance you know, no matter what, no matter where you're at, that's where you're starting from. <laughs> this is your starting point. Doesn't matter whether you like it. Doesn't matter whether you don't like it. This is this is the situation you're you're faced with. And and the way I describe it, and I've mentioned this before in podcasts, is the idea of um, trying to stop a boulder rolling down a hill. You know, you stood there bracing yourself up against this boulder, and maybe the boulder's not moving at all, but you ain't going to push it back up the hill. And the boulder is always going to win. And all of the time you're there, you're spending energy, you know, staying in the same place. Whereas if you just stand to one side, yes, the boulder is going to crash down the hill, but at least you've got more time and energy for everything else. So, yeah, that works quite nicely. And the, 
the one that you just reminded me of, and uh, I can't attribute it to someone either. So it, it's quite possibly Marcus Aurelius, but it's the idea of what are you rushing towards? Um, and um, the way that I've kind of think about it is when you're putting your, you don't have this experience of yourself. I don't know if you have uh, nieces and nephews or perhaps, but when you're putting your children to bed at night, um, you know, and you're like, oh my God, get to sleep, get to sleep. You know, if you keep having to go upstairs, read stories, you know, where's the teddy, all, all of this stuff, because you want that to be over and you're rushing towards sitting on the sofa, whereas you they could right, die yeah. and your, your children could die overnight. You know, you know, Marcus already says a thing of some, when you, when you put your children to bed at night, um, think about how much you love them because they may pass. Um, and he he was someone who could speak about that quite a lot because he did lose children. So um, of course, yeah, the idea of being in the moments of being there, being able to watch over your sleeping child is an incredible moment, um, and it's probably a lot more important to the soul than the next episode of whatever it is he happened to be watching at the time. Um, so yes, you you've reminded me. There's a great um, well, there are many great moments, but there's a great moment in um, on a much more prosaic level. But uh, Robert Persig's novel um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, um, <laughs> and there's a great moment where he's taking his motorbike up a mountain and the motorbike breaks and he's trying to repair it, and then he suddenly has this realization of why why is he hurrying to repair it? Because getting to the top of the mountain is only something he's asked himself to do there's no no legal requirement for it there's nothing that's going to happen when he gets to the top it's just a little challenge he set himself and the rest of the chapter is just him deciding to 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 be present with fixing his bike rather than fixing his bike just to get to the top of the mountain um and my paraphrase probably makes it sound a bit boring but it's an absolutely beautiful chapter in in literature no i mean i I, yeah the sentiment behind it is absolutely spot on because you know what, what are you, we're rushing towards something which potentially doesn't even have any value to us, really. But uh, yeah, I think there has been absolutely uh, an episode absolutely filled with golden nuggets of information, uh, a lot of literary recommendations, which I'm going to take <laughs> on board. Um, um, and thank you so much for your time, Lee. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. And um, yeah, any any final words? I remember once chatting to a friend and he said, he said, the trouble with having a conversation with you is I always leave with a shopping list of books I need to buy. (laughs) And that's Um, pretty true, I I think, so far. Yeah, I don't think I've got any final words, really. I found this very interesting. Thanks for thanks for your interesting thoughts and questions. You're you're very welcome and welcome back anytime. I will leave you to get on with your day. Thank you very much for joining me. Head to gistcoaching.co.uk to read blogs, get in touch or find out more about working directly with Chris to get your shit together. To follow us on social media, search for Gist Life Coaching.